Let's face it, you guys, we're all looking for our tribe, especially after the past three years. Those of us who are awake need the company of our fellow humans just to feel sane. Well, one way to connect with new friends is to let the world know just exactly where you're coming from. So when you head out into the world, let them know where you stand with the bold new designs for my brand new apparel line. Imagine you're at a coffee shop in a brand new town. You're feeling a little lonely and would love to have a chat. Then you remember you brought along your Don't Spike My Proteins tumbler from LukeStoryMerch.com. Just plop that bad boy on the counter and tell the barista fill her up. You might be surprised who gives you a wink and a smile. In any case, you've got yourself a hell of a conversation starter. And if you want to be a little less confrontational, I understand that. For some lighter fare, you might prefer to wear your own conspiracy analyst t-shirt or hoodie and wait to see who approaches. If you feel aligned with the topics we cover on this show, we've got a grip of incredible designs for you to choose some, available on tees, tanks, hoodies, and caps for men, women, and even kids. So head over to LukeStoryMerch.com to see them all. Stock up and thread up. That way I'll know who my people are when I spot you out there in the wild. That's LukeStoryMerch.com. First thing I want to know, Mike, is in in the most real nitty-gritty sense, what does it physically feel like to be bit by a rattlesnake? Because I think you're the only person I know that's ever had that experience. I'm glad. Um, these are two tiers to the feeling. The, the initial feeling is one of, sort of just pain, like how you'd imagine a bite to feel. I got bit on my left ankle, so I felt, yeah, this pain in my left leg. So I was like the first tier of the um, sensations. From that puncture itself. Yeah, from like the actual little, bite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a few of those in my day. Yeah. They just weren't venomous. Right. I'm glad. And then it took about five, ten minutes for then the second tier of sensations, which was, um, I guess, when the venom started to go through me. Um, it felt like darkness just coming in from the edges of my awareness, similar to the end of Looney Tunes when the circles would get smaller and I said, that's all folks. I would feel myself fading away and kind of just going away. And then I'd, I'd wake up and that happened to me twice before I got the uh, medicine, the anti-venom. Um, so that was that was pretty interesting. After the first tier, I was kind of like joking around, and after the second tier, I wasn't joking around anymore. Wow! Yeah. And I, I think you, the way we look at the treatment, the anti venom, generally is what we see in films and whatnot, where you get bit and then they introduce the anti-venom and then you just walk out and you're grooving. <laughs> but I don't think it's probably doesn't work that seamlessly, right? That's what I thought, you know, because it's because of the name, anti-venom. It sounds like a cure. Um, so I thought I would get that medicine and I would continue my journey. At the, at the time I was doing this crazy journey, I was walking across the United States. Um, but you're right. The doctor told me, you know, you're going to be in, in the hospital for a little while. I ended up being there five days. My legs swelled it's like the size of an elephant trunk. And before I got bit, I was walking 24 miles every day. And 
then I went like I couldn't walk to the bathroom. You know, I had a walker and crutches, and so it was it was it was real medicine. Um, but unlike some other plant medicine, I guess it's not a plant medicine, it's an animal medicine. I didn't get the lesson, you know, in an hour or two hours or eight hours. It, it took me really a month or two to get the gift from the snake bite, which was I had to, A, get really hurt because I got pretty darn hurt from it. And yeah, I was in the middle of this journey um, of trying to walk across the U.S. And I was two thirds of the way done when I got, when I got bit. And what happened was I got a ton of attention for getting hurt. The story of Mike Posner getting bit by the snake. I sound like the, got picked up by like the mainstream news stations. And, and suddenly, um, I started to get like a lot more popular for being hurt. So there was a part of me that wanted to stay hurt because it equated uh, yeah, being yeah. hurt with getting love. It actually wasn't love. It was attention. They're very different. And I realized, hey, man, like, I'm, I'm actually healing. And I have, now I have a decision to make as I got better from the actual injury, I, I can either, you know, just stop, like stay home, or I can go back to this journey that like really hurts physically and it's dangerous. I almost get hit by a car every day. And, but I know ultimately like who, who I, and meant to become is on the other side. I have 1,000 more miles to walk. And so I think I realized intuitively, like just like the snake, I wasn't quite done shedding the skin. And I had to go back and finish my journey. And once I did so, I went back to the spot the snake bit me and I started walking again. That's when I got the, the gift from the, the medicine, which was I could do like pretty much anything. It showed me how strong I was, but it had to hurt me to show me what I could overcome. Wow. That's interesting in your understanding of the attention that you received and the contrast between attention and love, right? And it explains, or it exemplifies, I think, a lot of what we see in our culture with victim identities and victim consciousness that's become so prevalent over the past few years. Disclaimer, caveat to that <clears throat> is that there are real victims, obviously, right? Like you were a victim of the snake and many of us are victims of different sorts of trauma and violence and oppression and all that. So I'm not minimizing that, but I have noticed culturally that there is kind of a thought meme or a prevalent trend of victim olympics right of like who is the most offended <laughs> who is the most repressed right and and oppressed and i see so many people kind of glomming on to those identities as a means by which to achieve a sense of significance 
through that attention. Yeah, I agree. It, the way I look at it is I make a distinction between the collective attitude and the individual attitude. So collectively as a community, we should try to minimize like the amount of pain and suffering any one of us has to go through. Like we should optimize our society to have the least amount of of rape victims, murder victims, like any any of those things, we should try to make that as small as possible. But should you find yourself as an individual, that's the collective, as the individual, no matter what life gives you, even of the most horrendous circumstances, it's never beneficial to you to self-identify as a victim. It's always better for a person across the board, no matter what, to self-identify as a victor, someone who's overcoming something. That's always better. So that I, I think of it like that. There's a distinction between the collective and the individual. That's dope. I like that. Yeah. And there's also a inspiring sort of reverberation when someone is authentically victimized and is able to transmute that experience and their suffering into, as you said, being the victor for others to bear witness and see. Because every every person on the planet is going to be victimized to some degree at some point in their life, right? Because there's nefarious people and dangerous animals and all kinds of things out there sort of working against our um, well-being <laughs> and safety, right? <laughs> but if if one can overcome something, whether it's walking across the country, getting bit by a snake, uh, for me, my, my big, you know, kind of... Um, personal victory was overcoming addiction and alcoholism. And I, I didn't talk about it publicly for m most of that, you know, the 20, almost 27 years I've been sober. I started my podcast. I was super embarrassed to kind of share that part. And as I did, I found other people benefited from that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so then I thought, well, it's still kind of embarrassing because I had some shame around it. But as I became more open to share it, then other people started coming out of the woodwork, AKA kind of out of the addiction or recovery closet. And we're like, oh man, thank you so much. So it's like, even though I'm like my addiction was born out of somewhat out of victimhood from trauma and things like that earlier in life. And most of the victimhood was things I did to myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> Through decisions I made, but overcoming that, not seeing myself as a victim has a collective reverberation on the, the collective because then each individual in the collective can go, oh shit, maybe I can look at my own life and my own challenges in that way. Yeah, yeah. You became a teacher. Right. You used uh, you used your pain, and like my buddy NQ says, you alchemized it into something beautiful, which is part of what you're doing here on your on your podcast. And and look, man, if you didn't go through the pain and the suffering. You wouldn't be able to help others. You wouldn't have the insights. You wouldn't have the stories. You wouldn't have the the requisite material, knowledge, wisdom to to make a difference for others. And so, when you zoom out, was was that addiction a gift or a or a curse like how how do you look at that now yeah perspective i dude i look at everything i've been challenged by in my life 
not only as a gift, but in many cases, experiences that I either attracted or was drawn to because my higher self knew the lessons that mm. were available in it. Mm. Like we were talking about birth trauma and circumcision and stuff like that before we recorded. And I mean, this took years to be able to recontextualize some of those things, um, specifically pertaining to feeling victimized because many of the things that hurt me in my life earlier on um, were out of my control, which is kind of the definition of victim, right? Is like, did you choose it consciously by making stupid decisions that then resulted in one being hurt or were there things done to you that about which you had no control but looking at those early things <clears throat> took a long time but eventually i started to see oh on some level beyond this version of myself this identity this persona that i chose the circumstances of my birth and my life because there was um, material in there for me to work with, to give me something to overcome, you know? What you're talking about right now is, is really right, in my opinion, because what you're really saying is you changed your past. You didn't change the events that happened, but as you evolved and your consciousness evolved, you look back at those events through a new lens and the way in which you saw them changed and the role in which those events play in your present moment, your story now is different. And so literally you're talking about changing your past, which most people you say on the service, like you can't change <laughs> the past is done. You can't change the past, yeah. but you can, but you can. Yeah. So it's very, it's very beautiful and poignant. And we can do that. The past doesn't change itself, right? So just because your consciousness evolves, you come to a new understanding, you have a new vantage point in life. All of us do as we evolve and we mature. The way you see some, the events in your past don't change. They're still, the role they play in your story, in your present moment, is still defined by the consciousness you had when they happened. And so you have to go back and look and, and rewrite, rewrite that story. And maybe it has the same events, but the, the meaning is different. And you, I believe you could literally do that with your whole life. That would be too much work. <laughs> so what events are worth going and changing the, interpretation of the meaning of changing the lens looking at um, looking at the old event with the new vantage point well the ones you should look at and reinterpret are the ones that hurt why do they hurt i think because they're they're calling to be changed i think life is rigged that way on purpose right they're 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 drawing our attention to them. And the potential there is like, is just really exciting for what we can do. And to literally view the, the worst thing that ever happened to you as the best thing that ever happened to you, you know? 
the snake bite sucked when it happened. Now I wouldn't trade it for anything, 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 anything. What a gift. It's interesting thinking about uh, timelines. I've had some experiences in ceremony. You know, and those experiences are, that's the integration, right? Is having realizations and gaining understanding. But then you come out of an altered state of consciousness and you go back to being your persona and living your life and doing the dishes to the the work I think in in those understandings is how to bring it back into real time, right? But one of the main ones that I've had, and I want to get your your take on this, because what you just said to me describes this. The way we look at time is linear and sequential. And so take you or me as a five-year-old boy in whatever year we were a five-year-old boy, that that moment in time, say, where we experienced a hurt or a trauma or something, is in the past, right? So it's gone, it's not here anymore. But in reality, in the eternal now or the eternal present, which is infinite, there's no beginning to time and there's no end to time. It's, it's actually all one congruent, simultaneous moment that is happening all at the same time. So it's hard to describe without like a whiteboard, but say we have like the beginning of what we consider time of when we're born and then you have the unknown infinite of now. We think this stamp right here is now part of the past. And that right now in this present moment talking to you is the now, but that's only because my attention is focused on this moment. And so it seems like the only real one and the only one that is malleable in the way that you just described our past is malleable. In reality, what I've discovered is that all of that time is actually the same time as right now. So you can actually jump timelines and go back and, and change the past based on, you know, what you just said, that tool of changing one's perception. So it's like what I've come to in my own experience of myself and my own growth and evolution is that, you know, say I'm looking at, you know, myself as a young child or the inner child is a term you hear kind of in psychology a lot, right? Inner child work and healing and whatnot. It's not that the five-year-old was in the past. It's just that my perspective now is the 43-year-old. So it seems like the five-year-old isn't here anymore. But in reality, like Russian dolls, it's a matter of like unpacking all of those layers of oneself. And that five-year-old boy of me, and I believe of you and everyone, is actually still present in the here and now. And one can build a relationship with all of those past versions of oneself and communicate with it, heal it, be the steward of all those versions that we were before when we were less wise and more vulnerable. Um, vulnerable in the sense of, you know, being taken advantage of or being harmed. And it's like we can actually have sovereignty over every iteration of ourselves from the moment we were born to the moment we sit in now. If we look at all of that time as one long moment that's still ongoing, right? Like everything is totally flexible and malleable and changeable solely based on our perspective. It's fucking wild. It's fucking wild. So thank you for reminding me of that in your own way. (laughs) 
Check this out. With everything that's going on with our food, air, and water, detoxing is no longer optional. And if you really want vitality, it's an absolute must. One of the best ways to remove toxins from the body is through sweating. But did you know that not all sweat is created equal? When you hop into an infrared sauna, the light is absorbed deeply by the body, causing your cells to vibrate. And that raises core temperature and enhances natural metabolic processes, pulling out nasty toxins like aluminum, cadmium, and even mercury. The sauna I use on the reg is my Amplify full-spectrum sauna from Sunlighten. Sunlighten's patented and science-backed technology provides the most effective, high-quality, near, mid, and far-infrared available. They actually have four different sauna collections, each of which features different combinations of light and varying aesthetics to fit both your needs and your decor. And with any sunlight and sauna, you can rest assured that you're going to sweat fast, sweat deep, and support your detox. And by the way, you can learn what makes sunlight and my top pick on the Lifestylist podcast, episode 477. So make sure to check that out if you want the deep dive. And then when you're ready to treat yourself to the world's best infrared sauna, visit get.sunlighten.com slash lukestory and use the code lukestory to save up to $600. You can also find that link in the show notes on your podcast app. And obviously, it would make zero sense to detox while exposing yourself to high levels of EMF. And that's why Sunlighten designed their heating panels to produce almost none so you can relax and detox safely. Again, that link is get.sunlighten.com slash lukestory, and the code is lukestory. Something else I think that's really valuable in our individual suffering and things we overcome, whether it's a snake bite or anything, is the empathy that's born out of that and the unconditional love and desire to serve and help others once you've experienced that kind of pain. So it's like you <laughs> say you're out on a hike and you, and, you, and you come upon someone who was just bit by a rattlesnake. You're going to have a very unique gift and ability to support and help that person based on your experience, and also a deep, I'm assuming, a deep and burning desire to do so based on the fact that you've been there. See what I mean? I so do see what you mean, yeah. How, how, has, how have experiences in your life, the snake bite and other challenges that you've overcome, informed the way you interact with people and your capacity to hold space for them, help them, love them? Well, so, it really is the pain that's caused me to be on that walk in the first place. This is where this where my passion lies. Why I'm why I'm here today. <laughs> so I'm laughing because I'm imagining like if I if I dedicated my life to like snake bite victims, <laughs> <laughs> start a foundation, <laughs> a support group. That's why I'm here today, man. I want to talk about snakes, and that's it. Okay. <laughs> no, but I I started that journey. Like, what drives a person to want to walk from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean? You know, I was somebody who had been very successful. Yeah, I had been nominated for Grammys. I, I made a lot of money. And something was just missing. 
I remember I was renting this like little guest house in West Hollywood, like a house behind someone else's house. And looking into this mirror with the toothpaste spots on the mirror and just seeing what I thought was the truth at the time. Like this aging pop star who is haunted by the ghost of his 20s. And he was now 30. And getting a call that one of my best friends growing up was dead. And just looking in that polka dot mirror thinking, dude, this, this can't be it. Like, I thought there would be more than this. I thought my life would feel different. And I've accomplished so much. Like, I've done all the things I thought would elicit that feeling of vitality, of life, of joy. And and none of those things were there. And none of those things were there in my present. We're talking about timelines. And none of those things were there in my future, meaning there was nothing I was looking forward to. And I I just knew some something was something was wrong. Something was wrong. And I had tried, I had like taken the plant medicine, I had like done the meditation retreats, been in therapy, all this stuff. And like not, nothing was like working. I would get high for a, a week and I'd just like come down. And we, as we talk about the timelines, I, I chose something which may sound obvious, but the medicine I needed to take at that time wasn't mushrooms or ayahuasca. It was putting something into my future that excited me, that made me smile, that gave me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And so earlier we spoke about, hey, you can go back and change, actually change the past, or at least the way you interpret it, and that affects your present. Well, the, the same, it works the other way as well. I put something in my future, which was I decided I, Mike Posner, I'm going to walk across America. That goal fired me up. It made me smile, just like it makes me smile now. It's so much so that this thing in the future also changed my present. And it gave me inspiration. It gave me vitality. It gave me joy at times. It definitely gave me excitement. It gave me a little fear too, you know, but it, it, I felt alive again. So I don't identify so much with the snake bite victims. I identify with those people looking in the mirror going, I, I know there's more than this. This can't be it. it. 
And this feeling of, I have more to give. There's more inside me that I have to offer. And for whatever reason, it's not getting out. I have gifts that are going unused. I want to share what I did when I felt that feeling because I don't feel it anymore. And so I I just want to serve those people, you know. It's really fortunate that you achieved this external success early in life and came to that place of going, shit, this wasn't it so early. I mean, this is something that I think most people who are successful in the external uh, ways There's a lot of different types of success, right? But our society measures success on notoriety, album sales, real estate deals, whatever, right? Whatever your kind of professional goals are, et cetera, or getting a family, having a wife and kids, whatever, buying a house, all these kind of metrics, these benchmarks of, oh, we've made it. And I got a few years on you um, and, and I don't think I've I mean, we're close to achieving my potential even on the external levels of life, but I know quite a few older men who bought into this idea that you get an education and you, you know, you get a high level job or you start a company, become an entrepreneur, get the wife, the kids, the Porsche, the things, and then you're still the same you that you were and you have the experience kind of like you had. But you were so fortunate to have had that at such a young age. You know, what are you like in your mid thirties now? I'm thirty five. Thirty five. You're a deep, at the time of recording. Yeah, you're thirty five. You're a deep cat, man. Well, thank you, you. You have a really broad understanding of the nature of the human experience for someone your age. So what I'm saying is, what a gift to be able to sort of fast track to that I've made it place and be standing at a wall. Going like, oh, if this is making it, <laughs> I missed something, right? Because you still felt dissatisfied and you probably have millions of fans out there that, you know, listen to your music and follow you on social media. And they're like, oh man, if I could just have the life he had, I wouldn't feel the way I feel. And you had the life that most people want, at least some version of that. And here you are looking at the toothpaste splattered mirror going like, what the fuck is this? There's something missing. What a gift, man, to be able to get that so young. You know, and, and also to not have burned the life that you built down, right? It's not like I back in the day there was these um shows on VH1 that were like, it's called Whatever Happened to, right? About like rock stars and pop stars that kind of disappeared out of the public eye and went through personal struggles and addiction and stuff like that. Where are they now? What yeah, is that it? Where are they now? Where yeah, are they yeah, now? Yeah. yeah. And I used to watch that. It was just so depressing, you know, but I got it. It was like, it behind the music. Behind the music. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's exactly what it was. And it was usually based on these tragic stories, right? About people that achieved this level of fame and kind of hit that point that you did. And then rather than going, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to put something in my future that lights me up and gives me vitality and a sense of hope, such as walking across the country or doing whatever, those are all examples of people who just turned their back on themselves essentially and and went into you know despair and distraction and addiction and all those things so i'm i'm stoked for you man it's so cool thank you and one of the things i was excited about talking to you about is 
the fact that you're a person who has this notoriety and you have so many people in the world that follow you and your work, that you are in a perfect position to actually affect change, right? When, when you're kind of, you know, a pop star, famous musician, people are downloading your music and then you come on a podcast like this and talk about some deeper stuff, you know, healing, transformation, consciousness, et cetera. You can have young kids that are maybe not listening to this show, but other shows you're on or whatever, right? That are going to save themselves from chasing their version of success, knowing that what comes at the end of that is the possibility of dire disappointment. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't have to. So I love, you know, I love talking to people that are influential that have this sort of trickle-down impact on people to help them find depth in their lives. It's such a cool thing to be able to do. That's why, you know, I have this not-so-secret wish that, you know, every CEO and every celebrity and every influential person in the world find psychedelics or meditation or whatever their path is to spread the news, right? It's like, I'm sure when you produce artists, for example, the experience that you bring to the studio is totally different because of the work you've done on yourself, right? And then their art is going to be imbued with the consciousness that you're bringing to it. And then that's going to affect people on a different level. It's just beautiful, man. Thank you. Yeah. Did you know that at least one in four couples are struggling with fertility? And many of us have issues with low mood and sex drive, difficulty losing body fat, and poor cardiovascular health. Can you guess the common denominator in all this? That's right, I'm talking about testosterone, folks. And let me tell you, low T is something that affects women as well as men, so everyone listen up. Most women after 25 or 30 have low testosterone, and it turns out healthy women should have at least 10 times more testosterone than estrogen. I had to look that up to believe it, but it's actually true. Upgraded tea is a collection of herbs that have all been clinically studied and shown to produce award-winning results. Users have seen a boost in testosterone up to 30% in just 90 days. It's got five ingredients that raise testosterone while lowering both inflammation and stress and boosting mood by regulating cortisol. Upgraded T enhances blood flow, promotes lean muscle mass and immune function, supports heart health, and boosts collagen for healthy hair, skin, nails, and bones. And of course, it also supports sexual health and erectile function, which is a win for both men and women. So to get on board with this testosterone boost, go to UpgradedFormulas.com and use the code LUKE15 for 15% off. Oh, and keep in mind that most supplements on the market are very poorly absorbed. The key difference with Upgraded Formulas is that their nano-stabilized supplements bypass digestion and go straight into the blood where they can get to work doing what they need to do. So stop wasting your money on expensive pee, folks. Go to UpgradedFormulas.com and use the code LUKE15. Well, it's one thing I want to, you inspired me and you said that it's a gift I had this realization at such a young age. But for anyone listening, you, it, it never feels like you're young. You all, like people always feel, oh, cause they're the oldest they've ever been right now. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah so when true. I was 20, I felt old, you know, cause I was comparing it to being in high school. Like, man, I'm 20 now. You know, when you're 15, you feel like, man, like I'm not 
11 anymore. It's a giant difference, right? And so one of the things like that, I'm always just reminding people of, there's this quote in uh, Stephen Covey. He says, leadership is articulating someone's potential so powerfully that they're inspired to see it themselves. And so one of the things that I'm constantly reminding people when they ask me for some kind of coaching or advice, never (laughs) unsolicited, but one of the things I'm constantly reminding people is this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. And a lot of times we sort of like reverse engineer our it's weird. Reverse engineer our future by like looking at our past. We think like, oh, well, th- this is like sort of the hand, I, the situation I'm in right now. So my future is going to be like, you know, this, but 5% different. It's very natural to do that. But in reality, man, like we like, God has like a plan for you, you know, it's big and it's bigger than you. It's the people you're going to touch. And so, I was just inspired to to just <laughs> put that in your episode here. It's like, this is just the beginning. This is just as a mantra for people to try on. And, and sometimes they're in the middle of that snake bite moment and it doesn't feel like a beginning. It feels like an end. Beginnings hide themselves in ends. Ooh, that's good. I like beginning that. Beginnings always hide themselves in ends. That's a tweetable. Jared, mark that down for our future Twitter. <laughs> the app on which I have zero followers. Exactly. Maybe since they changed the name, my account will grow. I don't think it works that way, but we can <laughs> we can hold space. <laughs> that's, um, but that that is, that's really good. Something I've observed in myself and, and other people is... It's that, you know, we so powerfully underestimate ourselves, you know, based on that. It's like, there's one side of it, right? Where you achieve some level of accomplishment or success and you go, oh man, I was like banking my whole existence and my happiness on this. And then you're disappointed. But there's the other side of it where you're like, this is awesome. I've arrived at X on the map and I feel great. This is as good as it gets. Don't dare hope for more, right? Whatever your your version of more is, whether it's internal or external. And I've had realizations like that on a number of occasions where, I mean, it's like when we bought this house and renovated this house, my first house ever. It's been a dream of mine for a long time to, you know, exit out of the world of being a renter and paying someone else's mortgage, building wealth for someone else, you know. Um and we did all this work on the house. It got a ton and moved in. And it was like I had so much energy and intentionality behind this whole thing that I was like basing my whole existence on this house. And then one day I had this realization. I was like, dude, Luke, you're thinking so fucking small. In the near future, you're going to look at this house you have as like this little rental property you have in Texas. That's like just whatever, you know? I mean, that's like a material example of that, but it, but it's also just I don't know, other things internally, the way I feel about myself, the impact I have on the world, the number of downloads I have, whatever metric by which I'm measuring my success or accomplishments, I'm always looking at it way smaller than it actually could be in the future. You know, it's, I think a lot of success, however we measure that, is 
not a lot, maybe all of it is really dependent on how much we can stretch our imagination, right? Into your point of like that you, you can actually not only alter your past timeline, but your future timeline. I think it's based on like your level of creativity and what you believe is possible for yourself. Like that's really the only limit because reality is so much what we interpret it to be. So what do you right now, Mike, envision for your future? Like what's the biggest dream you can imagine right now for yourself, you know, interpersonally in your relationships, you know, whether it's getting married or the number of sales you have or writing a book or your next climb up Everest or your next trek, like if you could stretch your imagination right now, what does your life look like in five years? Well, definitely my biggest, my biggest like uh, journey is going to be family and marriage and yeah, family for sure. It's like big because I'm someone who put no energy into relationships, intimate relationships for like most of my life. It was all about the music, the art and sharing the gift. You know, nothing wrong with that. That's just where my focus was. And uh, and so now, like, I'm very clear on how much that matters to me. And for a while, I convinced myself it didn't matter to me. So that's the biggest one for me, for sure, without a doubt. There's a bunch of other, like, creative goals, man, financial goals and things I want to do with my body and <laughs> treks I want to take and stuff like that. But that's the one that like excites me the most, man, because I know it's going to um, call forth a different part of my soul um, that that like no, no mountain can, no album can. And I'm excited and scared and excited. Right on. Yeah. I, I agree 100%, dude. Uh, a healthy relationship is the most powerful motivator for bringing one's highest potential into actualization. Like I'm called for, you'll meet my wife, Allison. She's right here somewhere. Um, what she calls forth for me is so much bigger and better than what I could ever call forth out of myself. <laughs> you know, it's hard to explain, you know, but I think you, you just did, you know, you're already seeing that, Ooh, there's really like some juice in there. For sure. You know, when, when you have like a partner. I think I, can I try to explain it? Yeah, please. Cause I'm on the other side. So maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe you tell me if I'm off. When you're single, like, you can turn off more. Meaning, like, I'm in Austin, right, visiting. Like, I'm going to go back to my hotel at some point tonight. And, like, I don't have to be, if I'm not, if I'm not the best version of myself, it's not going to cause any harm to anyone but me. Meaning like I could just watch YouTube or some stupid show or whatever. Or I could jack off or do whatever, like, do whatever distractive behavior. But I, essentially, it just turn off. Stop, stop. Uh, it's a good way to put being it. Being in the light. 
Yeah. You know? Check out. Yeah, check yeah. out. Yeah. But if my partner's in the hotel room with me, don't you think like that's going to have, like the energy's going to be off if, if my energy's off, right? And so, so actually calls for excellence more of the time. Yeah, demands that. And um, I think that's probably just one one part of like what you feel. I presume that's very well said. You know, that's very well said. That that has been my experience, especially trip on this. Okay, and I'm yeah trying not to be too self-referential here because I really want to learn about you, but I don't know. Our vibe is just a dialogue more than an interview, so forgive me for that. We're going to learn more about you too, but this is one of the ways I'm learning about you. Hopefully other people are too. My entire life, I was a classic avoidant, right? Because I, I valued freedom. It's like one of my highest values. Maybe love above, not romantic love, but just love as a whole above freedom i was like i gotta be free man so i'm not i'm not gonna get married don't want to have kids don't want to have a girlfriend i'm just gonna be a you know free agent for the rest of my life right and i clung to that and checked out in so many ways for years and what i started to realize eventually was that by limiting my capacity to experience love with another human being by always having these barriers and breaks and walls and all this shit, all this, these avoidant tendencies and tactics, that I was actually putting myself, I was erecting a barrier between infinite freedom and this very sort of limited and counterfeit version of freedom, the version of freedom of like autonomy to do whatever I want when I want. Go back to my hotel, zone out, order some food. Like I'm not accountable to anyone except myself, right? So I think, well, that's freedom. And still hiding from vulnerability and love and intimacy, right? And then I started to unpack that and see, oh shit, the freedom that I'm clinging to, that I value so highly, is not even 50% of the potential of true freedom, which is the freedom to actually be seen, right? And to be, to be vulnerable to someone who, of course, you know, is, deserves that and is safe to be so with, right? Dude, the freedom I have now, the freedom to be completely seen, to be ultimately vulnerable, to be lovable, to express my love without any fear or limitations in any way is like a whole other level of freedom that so far supersedes the freedom of just doing what I want when I want, right? Yeah. And within it, as you said, and this is so true, is the accountability to another human being and not doing anything because you're now one unit right you're still an individual but you're now one unit and that unit itself the relationship is its own living entity there's you the person and then this third entity that needs to be cultivated and cared for which is the relationship so if anything i'm doing affects that third unit of the relationship now my behavior is not just hurting me, as you said, it's hurting the other person. And that's where so much of that accountability comes from. It's like, it, but it's not to not hurt them. 
it's actually to not hurt myself, right? Because that person is calling forth the king in me that actually permeates all of my interactions and everything I do in my life. It's so fucking cool. I would have never, ever known that. Because my perception of it was like, I'm not going to be held down. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, <laughs> All that exactly. Shit. There's nothing wrong with that, right? If anyone's listening to you guys or anyone, like, no shame. I mean, I get it, but I'm just telling you what's on the other side of that is fucking beautiful. So I'm so stoked that that's part of your vision, man, because you have so much to to share and to offer. Thank you. you know? Well, you said a few things that were like really inspiring. One was the, the evolved definition of freedom. I have this friend, Lowell, he says, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want. Freedom is the ability to choose a course of action and see it through. So if you have the, if, if you want to maintain, not you, the, the rhetorical you, wants to maintain the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want, well, I'll tell you one thing from my perspective, like it, things I've done in my life, you're not free to climb Mount Everest. You're not free to walk across America. You're not free to have a relationship. You don't have, those things are all off the menu if you need to maintain ultimate autonomy to do whatever you want, whenever you want, at any time. And so you're right. That, that definition of freedom is incredibly limiting. Like Jocko Willink says, discipline is freedom. It's alluding to the same truth. The other thing you said that inspired me was the, the freedom to express love. Because I think a lot of pain, this has been true in my life, but I presume it's true in everyone's life because we're all humans. So much of the pain that I have experienced or experienced to this day comes from my love that I know I have inside me being stuck. Oh, 100%, bro. Like there's this love inside and you want to give it, you want to share it, you want to get it out, but you don't because you feel like you can't. You feel like if I give it to this person or thing, it won't be received the way I want it to. I'm scared. So I'll just hold on to it. And you think if I give it to X, Y, or Z, they won't give me back the same amount. And then I'll run out. And this is like a, another fallacy. You said the word fallacy earlier because that's looking at love like, like it's money. It's looking at love through a capitalist lens, which is like, hey, if I give you 10 units of love, now you have 10 units more of love and I have 10 units less. That's not how love works. If I give you love, you have more love and I have more love. We both get more. It's actually kind of a trippy thing when you really think about That's it, right? That's cool. I like that. And yeah. so we forget that truth, that love works that way. And so we throttle down. Sometimes I throttle down the amount of love I give. But love is like water. It's got to flow. When it stays still, it gets gross. It starts to be a little green algae in there. And then it's like <laughs> some little bugs and stuff. It starts to stink. And all of a sudden that love is, is dangerously looking a lot like hate. It's looking a lot like anger. It's looking a lot like depression. And so that just really inspired me because you said that you had the freedom to express love. 
And I think a lot of men feel that, especially men feel that because we're the ones that give the least amount, like throttle down the most. And we have a lot to give, you know? So true. I I experienced uh, some years ago in withholding my love, it was actually breaking my heart. And funnily enough, the day I learned that, this is trippy, dude, but how I met my wife, Allison, is I interviewed her on this podcast. So, hey, man, I got to yeah. get a podcast. Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> I, I heard you're starting a podcast, so you might, you might meet your, your one. But we were having a conversation about this very topic. And I realized in that moment, um, is episode 111, for those that want to hear it, and, and we didn't get together for years after that, but I had the realization that I was breaking my own heart by withholding my love, not just from, in a romantic sense, but just from the world, mm-hmm. right? Of having that mm-hmm. governor on, you know, kind of a scarcity mindset around love or a fear of vulnerability of, of being open and then being heard and things like that. So it's so, so true and so well said. Uh, what about being someone such as yourself, you know, that has some notoriety, have fans, you have a degree of celebrity, right? For lack of a better term. How have you dealt with the parasitic tendencies of people that want to be, not just in a romantic sense, but in business or anything, the parasitic tendency that people have to glom onto someone because of their, their notoriety? I worked in Hollywood for a long time in the entertainment industry. And I noticed around celebrities often there were, I don't know, it's almost like when you see like sucker fish hanging on a shark or something, you know, it's like they have all these kind of tentacles attached to them. (laughs) Publisher, manager, agent, label, right? And then, you know, friends, handlers, gophers, assistants. It's like you have this one person who's generating this energy and this revenue. And then all of these kind of, you know, uh, entities feeding on them. And, And then you see the person in the middle who's kind of blinded to it. And if they start drinking their own Kool-Aid and they're, if they're very ego identified, then they get totally sucked up in, in all of that. And they become more vulnerable to the parasitic nature of those hangers on. Like, how have you, how have you dealt with that in your career, in your life? Well, I think first of all, that, that, uh, scenario of like people being attracted to something that creates value in some ways, like, uh, money or, clout, I guess, in the entertainment industry. It's not that different than people going to work for a company, you know, that makes a product and the product and then and maybe some they don't believe in, but they go work there because, you know, they get a paycheck from it. And why are they attracted to that place? Well, because there's money there. Right. And so I don't I don't know if like the the melodrama of the pop artist or the actor is like that much worse or you know, whatever. But the way I've tried to navigate it, because what it what is distinct from like a, a company to the to the artist is what you alluded to is is at the center of it. You start to believe it, it your own thing because instead of a product being at the center, it's a human being 
which in this case you're asking about is me. And if everyone around me works for me, like I could get in kind of a dangerous feedback loop there. And I've noticed that in myself in the past, the worst was tour for me because, you know, a normal job, you go to the job and you go home, but on tour, you go back on the tour bus. So you live with everybody and every, they're all, all great people, but there's this implicit asymmetry in that they all work for me. You know, they all work for me. And when you're living 24-7 with everyone that works for you, that's not, that's not like the dynamic you want to dwell in all the time. So I would try to invent little hacks for myself. I had this assistant, lovely man, Super Matt, um, still a good friend of mine. And I was be like, hey, man, like, you got to go on vacation. <laughs> you know? I was like, I need to carry my own shit. I need to do this. I need to bring things. I was like, paid vacation. Like, you just go do whatever the fuck you want, but go away for two weeks, man, and have fun. So that was like one hack I would use on tour. Another hack was, you know, on tour is like the band and then there's the crew. And the crew like is up early loading shit in, like doing real manual labor. And they're up late after the show, taking it down. And so I like on a couple of tours, like we convinced like the, the crew to let me work. They would call me a different name. They come make fun. And I was like, I didn't know anything, right? And, they, <laughs> That's and so I would get up early and I'd load the stuff in, load the guitars and the amps, all that stuff. And I play the show. And sometimes I would do it, sometimes it'd be crazy. The context is everything. I'd, I'd play the last note of the show, go backstage, meditate, put on a black hoodie, put the hood up walk right back on the stage and just start taking it, really? taking shit down, unplugging microphones, pushing the amps. And, and no one would recognize you because it's context. You know, the, the, the person looking at that in the audience, they think, oh, that's like Mike. That might, maybe that's Mike's brother, Mike's cousin. You know what I mean? But it's not, it's me. <laughs> so that helped too. Because in, in, in the crew world, I was the bottom of the totem pole. I, I knew the least amount of stuff. And so I was like an intern that helped. Um, and then just overall in my life, I, I have what's called like the Detroit test. I'm from Detroit. And I got a lot of amazing friends there. And I always just want to be able to go home and relate to my community that I came up with. And so... Sometimes uh, I'm sure it's no different for you. I'll get to like sort of a group of people where they're off the, off the rails and I'm off the rails, right? We're both off the rails. Look at this shit. We're talking about changing the past. All this stuff. We're off the rails in a good way, in a beautiful way. But I know I'm off the rails. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes I get in a community where everyone's off the rails, but they don't know it. That feels dangerous to me. Because I, I need, like, these people, they can't pass their own Detroit test. <laughs> they go home, like, they're just, good. their feet aren't on the ground anymore. And so I always keep that in the back of my head. Like, you know, I always want to be able to go home. And 
I'm I'm an eccentric person. I'm a I'm a unique person, but I always want to be able to pass the Detroit test, go home and relate with my with my with my crew. Let's talk about hormones. They have a massive impact on your physical and even mental health. But when your hormones are low or out of balance, they can make life dull and dry and lead to lethargy, fatigue, and even reduced sex drive. Womp womp. Now, one of the keys to hormonal health is giving your body all of the minerals that go into making the hormones that support energy, drive, and performance. The problem is that between industrial farming, environmental toxins, and declining food quality, it's almost impossible to get enough minerals from diet alone. Enter Beam Minerals, 100% natural, plant-based, and bioavailable. Their tasteless liquid formulas are the easiest way I've found to cover all my bases and make sure I'm ready for action at all times. They provide every essential mineral the body needs, all in a single one-ounce shot, which I happen to take every morning and even sometimes at night. The Beam Minerals have no fillers or preservatives, just the purest fulvic and humic compounds sourced directly from the earth. So if you want to function as nature intended, hit up beamminerals.com and use the code LOOP20 to get 20% off. Oh, and I should also mention that Beam Minerals are certainly not just for men. Women naturally go through periods of mineral deficiency in response to menstruation, childbirth, and menopause. So symptoms like cramping, sleep issues, and mood swings can actually be signs of mineral depletion. So be you man or woman, if you want to support optimal hormone health, you need the micronutrients in Beam Minerals. Again, visit beamminerals.com and use the code LOOP20. So you, from the sounds of it, have, over the course of your career, developed humility hacks right to keep yeah, yourself that's a good name keep for yourself it. in check right like yeah. keep keep a sense of reality about about who you are which is what i think humility is right it's like an acknowledgement of your gifts and talents and your greatness but also knowing that in in the broad sense you're not special right we're all special but yeah, you're not exactly you're not special in the sense of having any superiority Correct. over any of Correct. the other special people how did you even know to have that idea. I started to feel weaker. Okay. My experience of life started to get worse. Like I would go to a hotel or something on my own. And if they like didn't have something right, I'd be super pissed off. And I'm like, wait a minute, bro. Like <laughs> it's nice to increase your standard of living and have nice things only if you appreciate them with the mindset of like that you had 10 years ago. If your expectation of how things should be is like rising in unison with, with your standards, with the, with your able, what you're able to like procure for yourself, it's just going to cause you, cause you misery because you're going to need everything to be just right. I was getting used to like everything being taken care of and if it wasn't taken care of perfectly I I would be upset I'd be like who fucked this up and sometimes there was like no one fucked it I was like I fucked it up it's still like 
yeah, it just, it wasn't good. It was like, I recognized this is not like, this is not the jam. <laughs> this is like, this is heading in the wrong direction. But it actually led, you know, it leads like to the walk across America. Because I thought like for years, I was bouncing around this paradigm of, I got to get my external circumstances just right. And if I do, everything will be right. Everything will be perfect. Like I have to read the one more hit song. I'd have this car and I'm looking at the, like my whoop stats, like get this many hours of sleep. And if I just like arrange all these things just perfectly and I make my life more and more comfortable where everything's lined up the way it's supposed to be, I'm going to feel ultimate peace. And it just became like a spiral to nowhere. And even my spiritual practices got enveloped into that. Like, oh, I just meditate just right. And I'll have, maybe I need to do one more retreat and that'll unlock the thing. And then I'll have it. And it never worked. Like there was no magic combination. I was always like tinkering. Oh, I'm going to change my diet this way. And it was like, no. Maybe instead of like trying to make your life more perfect and and get the sequence right and more comfortable, I should do the exact opposite. I should try to make my life less comfortable. I should try to rid myself of all these things that make me feel good. And instead of like trying to get a nicer house, I want to walk across the country and like be outside all day and have blisters and sleep in tents and RVs and and make my life less comfortable. And I found like a lot more freedom in doing that than than like trying to dial in the, the externalities like just right. That's, you know? that's dope, yeah. Then when I went back to a hotel or even just a house with air conditioning, I was like, this is dope, man. This is, this is awesome, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that makes sense. It's like the understanding that that, pressure on you as a piece of coal is going to make a diamond right but you see the thing is though my brother that you had to have some modicum of self-awareness throughout that process to even know to have the awareness when you were becoming spoiled right and you check into a five-star hipster boutique hotel on tour and you're like wait where's my filet mignon or whatever Like to even know, to even have the self- I said medium rare, god damn it. To even have the self-awareness to go, oh shit, I'm slipping a little here. I'm a kid from Detroit. I'm losing, you know, that grounding. So kudos to you for even having the self-awareness to reel yourself in and, and to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You know, I mean, I think vast majority of people that achieve some level of success in their art they have to really hit a wall before they get knocked down a few pegs and and develop that self-awareness, you know? Um, so professionally, you know, in terms of the apparatus that grows around an artist, it sounds like you developed your humility hacks is I'll just copyright them. You know, being yeah, man, it's your second tweet, dude. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's your second tweet. You know, moonlighting. Let's go, bro. <laughs> Let's go. Moonlighting as a roadie and stuff like that. What about in interpersonal relationships and you know, friend groups and romantic relationships? How did you or do you know when somebody is gravitating toward you and wanting to get closer to you because of 
the icon that they see versus the human being that I'm talking to right now. Like, I don't give a fuck how many records you've sold or whatever. Like, I either vibe with you or not because yeah. that's where I am in my life. I've been around a lot of famous yeah. people who were very unconscious. And, oh, come on, dude. You think it was a little cool? I took a pill in <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Didn't you didn't get a little chub from that? A little, little chub? Just a little, a little, half, little quarter little chub. Half, little half-circumcised chub. But going back... <laughs> Going back in my experience in the entertainment industry, you know, I saw so many noteworthy people that really were just used by their inner circle, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you see a guy who's like, there's no way that woman would be with him if he wasn't famous. That kind of phenomenon. I reject this paradigm, though, respectfully. Okay. Because it's going back to our victim-victor thing. Okay. They all work for me. They're all hired by me. I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about... You're out at a restaurant or bar, an event, and someone wants to be your friend or someone wants Same to date Same principle, you. though. Okay. You know, like, they're only my friend if I choose to make them my friend. And so, yeah, it's a narrative a lot, you know, of you hear of artists, like, that the manager took advantage. Like, hey, it's no different than any business, man. You have to have some, develop some... Uh, Ability to to hire, you know, and or befriend or date or whatever. Correct. So it's like an inner a spidey sense discernment that is like this person mode is motives are pure regardless of who they think I sure, am. Sure, like on the professional side, yeah, you got to learn how to interview. You got to learn how to um, yeah, and then mix that with your intuition that you feel like you vibe or not. And so I'd like to think on the personal side, same thing, and also. There's another narrative that that really has not been my experience, which is that of like the music industry has a, has a stereotype that is just full of sharks and bad people. And it just hasn't been my experience. I have met some of the most beautiful people in the music industry, honest, high integrity, just like some of the most influential people in my life. And some people that I would even call like angels on earth are in the music industry. So I think it's like any other part of life. You attract, you get what you put out. And are there some, are there some like shifty characters? For sure. But there's shifty characters for everybody, even if you're not famous. Some guys are like really, or girls are like really obvious. You know? <laughs> like this is like, this is like, you're like out of a movie. Like you think I'm gonna fall for this? <laughs> like you did any, there are some, there's some good ones, man. I've, I've gotten like tricked before, you know, for sure. There's some people that are high level with it. And that's, that's humbling in its own right. Oh, hey man, like your your spidey sense, your intuition. Maybe like there's some people that got some good. They know how to push your buttons in the right way, you know. And you you fell for it. Um, but it's never been that much of an issue for me, honestly. You know, you're fortunate, and I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. That's my a- friends are one of, if not the best part of my of me. I have the best friends in the world, man. I have like. I'm so blessed, you know. When you were walking across the country, I'm curious about the the actual logistics of that. When I imagine that, 
I imagine doing that without the infrastructure of all the freeways, towns, cities, et cetera, in between the East and West Coast. Like, cool, we're just out trekking like a pilgrim, right? <laughs> you know, when I think about doing that walk now, I'm like, are you walking on the side of the 10 freeway with like truck zooming by you? Yeah. And you go into the woods part of the time? Like, yeah. how do you actually route that? And are you just like getting smoked by traffic and smog and shit on the side of the road the whole time? Or are there certain parts where you go through federal, you know, land like national parks and, and mm. stuff like that? Yeah, well, the, la the way you described it in the second scenario is actually quite close. Um, walking on interstates is illegal. Oh, okay. So, uh, but most of the time you're on the side of the road. Now, I knew this going in. There's, there's some beautiful trails in America. I might do some of them. The Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. All those trails run north to south and they're trails. Walking across America is different. Not on a trail most of the time. You're mostly on the side of a state highway, um, and it's dangerous. The most dangerous thing is the cars. Apparently, this, you should look out for the snakes too. But, <laughs> but yeah. the, the, the cars. Were you on a trail when you got the snake bite? No, really. No, I was on the side of like a road. What? Like, Colorado Ten, Colorado Ten, in between um, Walsenburg and La Junta. Huh. And it's actually called Rattlesnake Butte. There's really? a lot of snakes there. Yeah. Um, did you, I'm sorry to go ahead. digress here. When the snake bit you, did you like accidentally step on it or was it just next to your path? I think I may out? have. I was on a break. Okay. So I, I remember that day, I think it was August 8th, I want to say. It was a hot day, really hot day. I'd done 16, I had eight more to go and I was, I was just ending the break, man. I never saw the snake. I just, Felt it bite me, and then it rattled after. Oh, wow. And I thought, man, couldn't you have reversed those? <laughs> like, if you had rattled, I would have I thought nature designed this to yeah. keep us both you know, so, out of harm's way. That's so funny. to answer your question, man, I, I must have either stepped on it. I definitely surprised it you know, and scared it because it probably didn't see me. And, and yeah, I never saw it. I just felt it. Well, this is the thing about you know, potentially dangerous animals in the wild that I've observed. I mean, there's the like city kid part of me that thinks they're coming after me and they want to attack me, a bear, a snake, whatever, mountain lion, right? My dad has like lived in Colorado his whole life in the mountains, hunting and fishing and stuff. And I've talked to him about this and I, I didn't grow up with him, visited and stuff. But I, I've asked him like, when he, cause he would go out and pack in Colorado in the woods and go hunting. He'd be out there by himself for two weeks with a, a mule or whatever and a, a firearm. Like, aren't you scared of bears and mountain lions like getting you in your tent? And he's like, what? It doesn't even compute. He's like, dude, they're so scared of you. It's hard to hunt them. They're not hunting you. And, and he said the same thing about rattlesnakes. He's like, rattlesnakes aren't coming on the trail to try to bite you. As soon as they feel your vibrations, they're out of there. Like you can't even get near them. So I'm always thinking more, you know, the more sane part of me that doesn't want to be afraid of my natural environment is like, I don't need to worry about it because they're trying to get away from me more so than they're trying to get to me. Yeah, he's right. So that's, you know, when something like that happens to someone with like with your bite, I'm like, why didn't the snake just try to get away from you? So you really must have surprised the shit out yeah. of it. Yeah, the only two ways to get bit by a rattlesnake are to surprise it like I did 
or to be like fucking with it, teasing it, you know, trying to poke it or, you know, messing with it. Yeah, or doing, or doing faith healings with it. In a, in a, in <laughs> yeah, a, coaxing it out with your Palo Santo. Backwards. Come <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Ayahuasca ceremony gone wrong, exactly. part one. <laughs> exactly. New podcast idea, dude. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's interesting that you referred to that. <laughs> that. <laughs> it was then when he tried to add rattlesnakes to all of his ceremonies. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you describe that experience as as medicine and the uh one of the little um what do they call that not cymatics uh what's the words is it somatics like when you use words different ways but people always refer to semantics like, semantics thank you i always get cymatics when you vibrate something it makes a pattern i always get it confused with semantics but people i gotta learn more about cymatics dude oh bro. <laughs> let's talk about those wild, instead. wild that sounds way more interesting I, than semantics i could send you some some videos all right uh but people kind of give blanket terms for plant medicines right but they always omit the bufo alvarius toad medicine that's not a plant and then they loop in fungal medicines like Psilocybin yeah. mushrooms. And so, so mushrooms aren't really plants, right? I know. That's the that's thing. what I was asking. Yeah, they're they're not. They're, not. they're, they're, they're fungus. Own, they're their own kingdom. Wow. Yeah, they're plant, animal, fungus, fungi. Their own kingdom. Yeah. What's bacteria? I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, maybe it's. I don't know. All right, good are, question. Are the avian part of the animal kingdom? I don't know. This is all. What things, about fish? It's all things we need to learn. But my you point is, a psychedelic fish out there. Is there really? No, I'm asking. Oh, I'm asking, do you think maybe there is one? Maybe if you microdose the poison of the puffer fish. But I think you, there's one out there, man. Deep. We got to go deep. You referred to the rattlesnake bite as medicine, right? Because of the, the sort of psychological and metaphysical lessons that you derive from that experience. But it's interesting how some animals that could be otherwise dangerous, like the combo frog, for example, right? Like there are poisonous animals that literally produce medicine. Yeah, in the right amount. Yeah, it's wild. In the right amount. Anyway, um, back to your trek. So... You sure you want to go back to my trek? Just for a second. I thought maybe you want to go deeper into psychedelic fish. Uh, I want to go there too, but I'm <laughs> I'm just joking. But I am you. curious go about ahead. the trek in the sense of you know I don't know just the way my brain works. I want to understand how everything works yeah, uh, on, I got a, you. on a detailed level. Yeah. So when you're on that trek, I'm assuming you have someone maybe driving ahead of you and sussing out your hotel, or there is there someone minding you, or are you just like out there on your own with a backpack? Yeah, that's a great distinction. So the, you can do either. And so the the word we use is either supported, semantics, supported or unsupported. Um, if you're out there with the backpack or a cart, that's an unsupported trek. I walked supported. So I had one person with me. It was actually two people and they took turns. And we had a giant RV we called Larry. And when I say that, people get this image of in their head of like, they're driving next to me and like handing me towels. It's not like that. They go ahead of me and yeah, they scout, they do the route and they mostly, they're mostly what they're doing is getting food because I'm eating a fuck ton of food every day and they are finding a place for us to sleep. 
And so at the end of the day, they, they go ahead and I, I walk. And so when I'm walking, I'm not with the RV. I'm not with the other guy ever. I'm only with them when I'm not walking. I catch up to them and um, they feed me. And uh, I'll like touch some sign or like a fire hydrant. And they might drive me to like a place where they found we can sleep. And most of the time we sleep in the RV. The only times we don't is when we get to like the cool parts, which is like Mojave Desert, the Rocky Mountains. Then we sleep in a tent and we almost never sleep in a hotel. Um, and yeah, that's how we ran it. Those guys were incredible. Julian and Colin, they took turns. And like one would come from a month, the other would rest, and they'd come back and forth. And they made it so I just had to walk. The, I had to walk. And they took care of pretty much everything else. I'm going to take a moment here to share an incredible resource with you. It's called Quantum Upgrade. Every unit of matter contains quantum energy, and so do our cells. Every person has a quantum energy field and constantly interacts with other quantum energy fields. Quantum energy is so important that the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was specifically about quantum entanglement. Let me explain here how Quantum Upgrade uses this energy to powerfully enhance our well-being. Through many years of research, Quantum Upgrade has developed one of the world's most potent sources of usable quantum energy. When you sign up for their service, Quantum Upgrade associates your home, your phone, your business, your pet, or even your car with this energy source. And you all know by now what an EMF mitigation fanatic I am. That's because EMF frequencies are incoherent and dramatically stress the human body. Well, Quantum Upgrade counters this problem by harmonizing the EMF to make them no longer toxic to your body. This is why I love the service on my car. My EMF fatigue has dramatically improved. I mean, it very obviously works. But apart from the EMF benefits, Quantum Upgrade also enhances your vitality in many other ways, which are shown in the studies on their website. So if you want an affordable way to deal with EMF and experience the vitality you deserve, check out quantumupgrade.io and get a 15-day free trial using the code LUKE15. Again, that's quantumupgrade.io. What did it feel like when you reached the West Coast? You land in Santa Monica or Venice or something? Yeah, like first of all, I regretted picking to end there because... And walk through a homeless encampment? <laughs> I did, yeah. Literally, literally. And it wasn't the homeless. It was just like the, the, the whole urban, going back to urban... This was the, this was the distinction that like you, you mentioned it with your childhood and there's to you and your father. I was the same. I grew up and lived my entire life I before this, either in a city or the suburb of a city. Tw 31 years. When I walked across America, I walked across three cities. They each took me a day, respectively. So the walk was, I think, 187 days, something like that. Six months and three days. Only three of the days were in cities. Cities are small, mileage-wise. Walk across me one day. The rest of the time, six months, was 
in those spaces in between the cities. Interesting. You just blew the whole overpopulation myth out of the water. <laughs> oh, dude. You like, see this when you fly over the U.S., America's right? wide you're open, like, man. You're like, uh, there's actually very few people here on this continent. Yeah. Everyone's just concentrated Con- in the Yeah, city. congregated in these little epicenters of, of that are cities. And so, for me, that was eye-opening in so many different ways. It changed how I saw space, first of all. Um, and it also culturally, the people that didn't live in the cities, they lived very differently. We talked about time earlier. The timeline their lives were on was very different. At first, it surprised me, but a month or two in, if I met a 24 year old, I didn't have to ask if they were married or not. They were married and they had a kid. You know, me and my friends are in our 30s, you know, we're still doing the freedom thing. That's very normal in a city, not there. And so that was was very eye-opening in a lot of ways. And it was beautiful in a lot of ways. Um, As you go, as I, I went east to west, as you go west, the spaces open up more, things get bigger, right? And so I walked across Navajo Nation, walked across the Mojave Desert. It's, just be- it's beautiful. And then when I got to LA, I was like, man, why did I choose to end here? Not because <laughs> of anything particular against LA, but just, it's just a city, man. And it smells bad. And um, every city smells bad compared to being in nature. And I was like, man, if if I could like go back, I probably wouldn't have picked to end here. But in some ways, it was perfect and beautiful because a lot of my community was there, people I met while I lived there. And so, what did it feel like to get in the water after, you know, trekking across the desert and the mountains? It felt like the first day of my life. I mean, it must have been like a baptism. Yeah, it felt like it was this moment I'd been dreaming about for a year. And it's, you know, you think about it like, almost obsessively as you're going, like this moment of ending, of like getting there. And it hurts, you know, walking hurts like bad. That's a lot of miles, bro. Yeah, it's not like... I walk around here in the neighborhood, I maybe walk a mile on a good day and I'm like, oh, that's enough. It's not like (laughs) sore muscles. It's not like that. It's like... Like... it feels like you may be doing some damage to your body that's going to be permanent. It's not clear. It's hard to stand up in the morning. Got blisters, sometimes like volcanoes. And I just remember the pain in my heels was just like insane. And, you know, we talk about that vision of the future. That what kept you going? So that was a, that, I just thought about that moment so much. And then to actually be there that final day, I, I took a vow of silence until I went into the water. So it kind of sounds like <laughs> dramatic, but I chose not to speak that day until I went in the water because I knew people were going to ask me that question. How do you feel? It's the last day. I didn't know yet. I just wanted to feel what I was feeling. And we set it up so that we had like a little ceremony. And 
there's about 30 people there, loved ones. And they were in a row, uh, parallel to the shore of the beach. So they were standing shoulder to shoulder in front of me, between me and the, and the water. And I knew the order they were going to be in. And I had a note to each of them that I'd written in my backpack. And I, I got my friend Adam first and I handed him the note and they just said what they needed to say to me. Next was Chad, whom I talked to so much on the phone and he more than anyone like knew what I was experiencing. And I talked to him on the hard days and when I, I looked him in the face, I just, I wept. And I went down the line. My friend Richard slapped me in the face. He's like, you're a crazy motherfucker. <laughs> My friend Teeny had had a baby since I left and she handed me the baby and I hugged the baby. And um, and there were all these totems that people, people had given me along the way, pictures of their father's picture, like a coin commemorating a soldier that had died. Um, Luke had given me a, a patch from his uniform in the army. Um, and so I had this obnoxious reflective vest that was just full of reminders of who I was walking for, what I was walking for, that wasn't just me. Guitar pick, this one young woman had given me of her dad that died. I want you to keep this. And I went down the line and I opened up that vest and I just remembered each person, man. I thanked them. In my backpack, I had my, my father's old uh, bathing suit that somehow I, I, ha I have. And my, my dad had died two years before I started the journey and I, I put his bathing suit on. I looked in the sky and I put four fingers up for me, my sister, my mom, my dad. And I just sprinted in that water. And I said it earlier, it didn't feel like an end. It felt like the beginning. Wow. What a powerful rite of passage. Vo voluntary, intentional rite of passage, right? Rather than being bit by a snake or, you know, any of the other things that sort of haphazardly take place in our lives that we can transmute into, you know, their own um, rite of passage, but they happen to us. And then we can hopefully discover they happened for us, but you did something to yourself and for yourself simultaneously. It sounds like as a really powerful initiation. Yeah, I knew I needed it. Yeah. I knew I needed it. And we, I think, lack those kind of rites of passages, especially for our men or young, young yeah. boys becoming men. It's interesting, like in the Bible, there's no teenagers. It's boys and men. Oh, wow. You know? That's a trip. And, I never thought about that. Uh, and so I, I, you know, in a lot of ways, 
I felt like a, before I did the walk, I felt like a, a boy in a man's body. It's hard. Like, yeah, I manufactured this rite of passage for myself. And I knew that rite of passage couldn't be an easy thing. It had to be a hard thing for me. Approximately how many songs do you reckon you've written? Thousands. Really? Yeah, for sure. Since I was a kid, started when I was eight. Wow. 30, almost 36. So, wow. Getting close to. Where do they come from? They come from God. Yeah, they come from God. And when I, did you discover that they weren't originating from you and your ego? <laughs> Which a lot of artists miss, right? Yeah. Well, I think um, I started to ponder it in my late 20s in conjunction with me starting my spiritual journey, my sadhana. And that really just became more concrete in the last couple of years. I started exploring the idea of like, where, where in the late 20s, of well, where do the ideas actually come from? Do I get credit for an idea that pops up in my head? I'm not doing that when I'm inspired. I'm not like, you know, it's not voluntary. I wish it was more voluntary. I can create the space for it to happen and create, clear my channel. I can, yeah, keep my connection clean, clean but I'm not actually like, putting and manufacturing the melody or the lyric that shows up in it's like showing up to me so you asked it like the same question you just asked me i started to ask myself a few years ago and i could describe the the sensation experience it's, it's not not as mystical as you one might think i think most people have had the experience of a song popping up in their head, like someone else's song, like, oh, I can't get this song out of my head. It's like in their head. Song comes up. It's very similar to that, except I just have never heard the song before. And no one's ever heard the song before. They say, oh, it's like, um, that's, that's an idea. That's a piece of inspiration. And then, yeah, you do have to do put some elbow grease into it. They're like, okay, that's like part of a, I heard some melody or it's something and then I have to develop it. And sometimes that takes discipline and um, intention um, and persistence at times for sure. Um, but yeah, man, that's that's sort of been my journey. You know? What do you do to intentionally open that channel of inspiration, you know, do you have a ritual where you, you know, take a certain time each day and you're sitting down to write music or is it just when you're in the process of hanging out and living your life, you just get a moment of inspiration, you seize the moment, open up the channel right then. Is it how much structure goes into the creative process for you in the initial phase of just birthing a rough idea? Yeah, for me, it's, it's very, it goes in chapters or seasons. So if I'm making an album, then yeah, I have time structured in the day. I'll have studio sessions booked with different creators and we might write something together. And that's like time there in the schedule. Um, I, I do pay attention to the times of day. I like, I like that moment in the morning. It's like before I've eaten, maybe I've meditated, maybe I've worked out, maybe I haven't. But just like that's that's like a special time to me. But also they come, sometimes they come outside of the structured time. And 
I think it's really important to listen. So um, when I have an idea, I'm pretty like, pretty uh, disciplined about at least making a little voice recording of that melody I'm hearing in my head or writing down that idea. Um, doesn't mean I have to finish it right then, but should write it down, <laughs> you know, because it'll go, it'll go away, you know. And so, it's kind of like when you wake up and you've had a really fantastic dream, and if you don't take a moment to sort of recall it or record it in yeah. some way, then by the time you get in the shower, it's gone. It's just like, like that. I had some wild ass dreams. I know. Uh, maybe in the early morning before I woke up today uh. and, and I woke up and I was like, oh my God, this means something, you know? And now I can't tell you one yeah. iota of what those dreams were because I, you know, I had no motivation to really record them other than, wow, that shit was wild. And then, yeah. you know, got up and they're just- And also, they're sometimes they're so powerful that you think, there's no way I'll forget this. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then you do. Totally. <laughs> How do you know when some- some uh, piece of art comes through and you, and you know, you do document the rough idea. How do you determine if it's worth refining and, and uh, sort of editing and then potentially sharing with the world? It's all intuition based. It's all intuition based. Every step of the process is heart intuition based. Is this the right snare drum or that one? Which one feels right? That's the right one. Is this the right lyric here? Or could I beat it? Or is this, should I try this word? You just know when it's right. And you know when it's not right. So I think part of the main part of, you know, I think being a great artist is not convincing yourself something is done and or right before it is. Because have, you ever, have you ever had a, sorry to interrupt, have you ever had a complete song channel in in its entirety and it's a done thing? Lyrics, not instantaneously. Musical. No, not instantaneously. I think that's wild. Mozart you hear that style. sometimes, you know, you t an artist that writes, a, you know, an iconic song and they're like, yeah, I just sit down with the piano or the guitar and the lyrics, the melody, the arrangement, everything was just poof, done. Yeah, like Jeff Tweedy's written a few songs like that. I had know. songs where That's I'm crazy. writing, you know, and it all comes out in one, like one, boom, like that. But it's not in an instant, you know. Or I have songs like, I could pick up your guitar now and write a song right now as I'm singing it. So I could do that. But it might not like be good. <laughs> it might not make right. my album, you know? Right. Um, so yeah. So they come in different ways. And, and to me, it doesn't matter how they show up. It matters like how they end up, you know? It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. Are there any artists? I'd rather have one great song than a thousand good ones. Yeah. Are there any artists uh alive in the world right now that you aspire to work with in what? a, in a, in yeah, a co-writing or production context. There's like, so many. Name me a couple that are like on your absolute dream list. I want to uh, work with Paul Simon. Um, dude, there's so many great. Fred again right now. I'm really into I'm trying to think who else I've been listening to lately. Um, I like, I've been listening to a lot of EDM lately. That makes me inspired and gives me energy. Martin Garrix. 
Yeah, man, there's so many. Like the world is just filled with amazing artists, dude. And there's more, there's more than ever because of the technology, you know? So. I know that's one thing that's been interesting to observe is the way artists collaborate in the uh, era of internet, you know, especially like during the COVID stuff when people couldn't tour, or go to studios and all this. Cats are like <laughs> writing and recording albums, living in different countries, right? Sending files back and forth. It's it's so interesting, you know, someone can just like send you a drum track, you lay guitar and you send it somewhere else. They put saxophone, background vocals over here. Next thing you know, like you send it off to mastering and no one was even in the same room ever. Yeah, yeah. It's trippy. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. I'm, I'm an old school kind of analog music fan and sometimes player. So I really like, you know, the live experience of people in a room together, but... It's interesting. Yeah, um, you can't emulate that. Yeah. That, how, like, how much, when you go in, into a studio, if you have your preference, how much of the ensemble is taking place live? Are you doing, I mean, some of your stuff, I'm assuming is like programmed drums, but if you're working with like a live drummer, electric bass player, et cetera, do you, do you like to record the bass, basic tracks live if you can? It or? doesn't matter what I like. like. It matters what the piece calls for. Okay. So, I'll write a song I'll, and I have to go down a rabbit hole of getting that recording to be as great as I think the song is. And sometimes I have to try different ways. So sometimes that means just me at my computer making a beat and my keyboards and it's just me and I produce the whole thing. And then sometimes that means like uh, I have a song called Buried in Detroit. It was my father's favorite song, my mom's favorite song of mine as well beautiful it's got a full orchestra on it um so it just depends on the piece if i am recording with a band let's say like a more traditional rock style band where there's drums bass keys guitar though we like to do it yeah pretty live um when i do that i don't do that a ton a ton but when we do it i like to get a great engineer uh shiftman and then yeah we'll have the drums we just have the room set up and it's like the same room Rage recorded in. That's what I go off the drum drum sound. I like the way the drum sound on the first Rage Against the Machine album. So pick that room, that engineer, those mics, and it's pretty, pretty darn live. The vocals are after usually. Yeah. Cool. cool. And then great players. <laughs> Make your job easy. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially the drummer, man. I think people don't realize how integral a solid drummer is. Mm. I I think really like, you know, in terms who's of, your favorite drummer? Oh man. All time favorite drummer, probably Charlie Watts uh, from the Stones, who as far as like drummers, drummers, you know, your average rock person is going to be like John Bonham or Keith. That's Moon, what I was going to say. You know, and there's a lot to be said for that. Don't, but, don't, don't. <laughs> you know, despise us Bonhamers over here. I don't. I don't. I appreciate that. He had that. swag, didn't he? Like my friend Elliot, shout out to Elliot, <laughs> uh, who's, you know, not a professional musician, but he can play drums. And he can sit down with headphones on his electric drum set and play John Bonham shit. And I'm just like, what? How do you even, how does a human even do that? The reason I think I called out, and there's a zillion, but Charlie Watts, A, I'm just like a huge Stones fan. But to me, like, what makes a drummer more so than technical ability is the is the feel, right? It's like it's the backbeat. It's like the thing that makes you go like that. You know, it's for those not on video, bopping your head. It's like when it's irresistible. I'd also add 
any and all drummers from 70s era James Brown band. Like that shit, like funk, R&B, like especially during the 70s, that's like my peak, you know, soul, R&B, funk, that era, that kind of drumming. That's the shit that moves me. Because again, it's simple. If, if you just like, I used to have, back in the day when I was a bass player, um, I bought these like C, the CD set of how to play James Brown bass lines. And it was super cool because this is like, you know, pre-Pro Tools and stuff. But they re-recorded all these classic James Brown tracks and isolated the two guitars, the bass, and the drums. So you could just listen to the drum track. And you listen to the drum track and you're like, what? Boom, ta ta boom, ta You're like, I can play that shit. But then you throw the bass line on and you're like, oh, this is bumping now, right? And then you add one rhythm guitar that's barely playing anything, right? It's very minimalist. Just did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, isolate it. Doesn't sound like shit, but you throw that on top of the drums and the bass and you're like, this slaps now, you know? So like, I think like funk drumming is probably my favorite, but I can't pick out, you know, maybe the guy from the meters or different things like that. But like, that kind of if I could like wave a magic wand and play anything, it would be to be a monster funk drummer. Like that just because it makes me feel so good. It must feel so good to be able to play that way. Yeah. You know? I got to work with uh Steve Jordan. You know oh, Steve Jordan was. Yeah, he's in the Stones now. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He um, took Charlie Watts' place because he, he played with Keith Richards for a long time. He did it. I did know that. Solo I knew he yeah. I knew he was close with Keith. He's a fucking human metronome. Like that that guy's meter isn't, it doesn't even sound like real drums the most. He's like yeah. so in the pocket. What was it like to play well, with Well, play him? with Steve, it was interesting. It's like one of these, uh, he was, I asked him to produce some songs for me. So he put together a band and he was producing as well as playing on the stuff. Wow. And we ended up not using it. Okay. We didn't quite nail it. But, the experience was just out of control. Like the guys, first of all, the band he brought in, as you would imagine, was was nuts. But the way he could talk with the drums, like, because I would, I also felt like severely out of place. I'm like playing my very simple, like, it's my song. So I'm playing my very simple, like, piano lines with these, like, world-class players. And I'm laying like a scratch vocal that I'll overdub after. But he could play a certain fill that would that everyone knew the song's over now. Or he could play a certain fill that everyone knew, like, we're going to the bridge now. He oh, could direct the band with his fills. Wow. And it was so, it was so primal. Like I knew, and I'm not like the same kind of level musician as these guys. I knew exactly, like, yep, end of the song. Dun. Like <laughs> Wow, that's cool. Yeah, he, it was it was something. That's cool. What a blessing. Are you like, are you, if you were a snare drum, what kind of snare drum would you be? Oh, man. Um, you know, I like, I like a snare sound that almost sounds like a, you know, when you take the chains off a snare drum and you make that reggae snare, yeah. like a timpani, well, I forget <laughs> what it's called. Like, I like snare with very little snare. Interesting, You know, like man. a bongo drum sound would be the extreme. <laughs> that's of like, so right. That's, that's the kind of snare sound I like. That's, it's one of the reasons I really despise 80s music when they mm. started blowing out the, all the yeah, effects the, the on the cannon snares. Shot. I, I can't stand that sound. I love it. I can't Mutt Lang, stand dude. That. 
I hate that. When I was a teenager and I was a little metalhead and shit, I loved it. But now it's like, I'll listen to something from the A's that go, God, if you guys would just remix this and take all the effects off the drums, it would smoke. But yeah. it's like, yeah, that shit. Yeah, I can't stand it. So I think... I think generally in music, the way I roll now, as I get older too, it's like, I'm that guy now that's like, ah, turn that racket down. I, I see why my parents like hated loud music when I was a teenager. But most music I tend to gravitate toward is like the most organic sound, you know, less so than anything that's like electronically manipulated or derived. And not to say that electronic music is any less valid because it still takes someone's creativity to create those sounds and put them together but yeah i just sit around listening to mantras and shamanic music ikaros i like music that just has a lot of spirit to it anyway a um, couple more things i wanted to ask you which were i, I think i'm just i'm, I'm uh, enjoying talking about music because it's such a passion of mine and i i don't think i've ever interviewed a musician before and forgive me if doyle I'm, yeah, where's my friend Doyle? I've been trying to get his ass on here for a while. Uh, but the, the, the last thread I want to go uh, on with you here. What role has psychedelics played in your understanding? I mean, you're obviously a very deep guy. It sounds like some of this just inherent to your nature. Have you had transformative experiences in that realm that have shaped who you are, you know, in your music and in your, you know, individual expression yeah i've had some beautiful experiences i've had some really challenging experiences um with psychedelics as well i think they've been helpful in expanding like uh modes of consciousness so like um or opening up modes of or states of consciousness that i hadn't been to before and then i found once they're once you've gone there once, like the wiring or the firing happens once in the brain, you actually can go back there or experience some version of that same state without without using them, which is cool. So I definitely like from my vantage point now, um, when I think of psychedelics, I think of them in that way. And they, they also become like kind of a... <laughs> a metric or a yeah metric of like how i'll measure uh, other experiences like i remember the first thing i said when i got off the last rappel off of mount everest and got off the rope i was like man i was like that was way more powerful than ayahuasca <laughs> so i'll sometimes reference them in that way for other experiences that are also transformative and it's they're kind of like a rubric that I use at times. Presently, they're not like the my main main mode of growth. Um, there's some I use maybe anywhere from a few to zero times per year, depending on what was called for. My main mode of growth recently has been pain. Just looking at where it hurts and going, okay, what's the lesson there? But yeah, man, that's sort of been my journey what's your meditation and breath practice look like speaking of ways to get there without putting anything in your body i've been a meditator for gosh maybe it's like 10 years plus now i've been doing mainly tm although i've done like a vipassana retreat sometimes i'll mix in other stuff so i typically have 20 minutes twice a day blocked out now you also mentioned breath work 
few years ago, I got to study under Wim Hof and I got really excited about that practice because it's awesome. And I, I studied and, be, and became a Wim Hof Method instructor. So I teach cold immersion and I teach breath work. Sometimes professional sports teams will bring me in, not, not to sing, to talk to them and, and I'll lead a, lead a ceremony, you know, a session. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. So isn't, that, isn't it, just to interrupt you for one sec, isn't it beautiful to see someone with the cold immersion to see someone reach the point of surrender and to see someone get better. I mean, the first time is beautiful, but to see someone master their nervous system, right? And learn how to just let go into that surrender. It's like such a beautiful moment when someone gets in the cold bath and they're like, <laughs> and, you know, whether you assist them or, you know, they just figure it out to see that moment when it clicks and they go, Ah, oh, I'm safe. I'm safe. That's I love that moment. I mean, for yeah, myself too. That's, that's my goal when I go in the yeah. ice bath in the backyard. It's not people like how long you stay in. And there was this period where, like, I was like, I was sitting there for 20 minutes, and I'm bragging about it on social media. I think many of us go through those phases of like broadcasting our badassery with the cold. <laughs> yeah. But a friend of mine texted me the other. It's embarrassing now to think about it, but. At least I'm aware and I stopped doing that shit. But my friend texted me the other day. He said, man, I just got an ice bath. So cause I was like, right on, bro. It's going to change your life. And he said, how long do you go in? First, I fuck with him. And I was like, usually 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> He's like, whoa, I could barely do two minutes. And I said, no, actually, how long? I don't even time it. I mean, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 years or something. But for me, it's not about the time. It's about how fast can I surrender? Yeah, that's good. And as soon as I'm totally calm and that's relaxed, good. then I get out. Yeah. You know? That's beautiful. Yeah. So anyway, I, I didn't mean to steal your thunder there. No, it's Continue beautiful. on. So you're, you're going into My daily practice, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I got these two 20-minute slots, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And so I might, I might choose one day to do breath work instead in that slot. Um, and I, I am obsessed with the ice bath, you know, whim. Wim always says, like, you know, it never stops being cold. Um, but you do, you do like gain a certain, I guess, more proficiency in it. You, you can access that calm, drop into that calm quicker, as you said. And, do you uh, find with that ability to calm your nervous system and self-regulate that you're that you're uh, developing through the cold exposure have you found that that bleeds out into your life and you get a ticket or you know a check bounces or some shit happens that would be triggering to your nervous system and put you in a sympathetic state do you find it transfers over where you're able to self-regulate out in the world faster because of the self-regulation training of the cold? I think so, man. You know, I'm, like you, I'm doing a lot of shit at the same time. So it's like, I don't really have my variables controlled for. So I think so. You know, but what keeps me going back to the, the ice bath is just how I feel afterwards. I feel energized. I feel alive. I feel happier. And so it's the mood enhancement for me that like keeps me going back in that water. Um, and like, yeah, if you gave me a parking ticket right after I got out of the ice bath, I wouldn't give a fuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So. I, I think the cold dude is the ultimate 
antidepressant and anti-anxiety medicine on the planet. Honestly, anytime I feel weird, I get in there, I get out, jump on the rebounder for a few minutes. I'm a totally different person. Yeah, it's almost scary how it's how crazy. good it works. It feels like you should have had to work harder to shake <laughs> a, that bad mood off. It really is. Dude, that and and for me, microdosing. You know, microdosing psilocybin or LSD, depending on the day. Um, the combination of those two, it's pretty hard for me to get in a bad mood. I was doing the microdosing psilocybin. I found sometimes my heart would start beating like all hell. Get a little amped. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't like that. Yeah. That ever happened to you? When I've pushed the dose a Maybe little bit. Maybe it was bit, too too much of a microdose. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not quite a I've, microdose. I mean, but. I've definitely had that happen, but I'm I'm very measured about it most of the time where mm. it's 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 not uh, it's imperceptible. Yeah. You know, which is the definition of a microdose is that you can't feel it. And I think that's the thing that... So I was doing too much. Maybe. Yeah. You know, different people are have different levels of sensitivity. It was weird, like with the same dosage though. And I think I was doing either point point one or maybe point two. Yeah. And some days I wouldn't feel it at all. And then some days I would be like... <laughs> it can be a bit stimulating. Like, I've also noticed that... I do better not drinking coffee or having any caffeine mm. if I'm microdosing. If I yeah. microdose some mushrooms or some acid, yeah, or you something, don't mix those. Yeah, you got I, one, dude. Don't be greedy. Yeah. <laughs> if I top it with caffeine, it's got to be on a day where I really want to be amplified. Don't you know, be but greedy. if I'm just chilling, getting worked on the computer, doing a podcast, I don't want to be that that jacked up. So I'm I'm definitely with you there. But I think some people that you know, start getting into the microdosing because it's like the thing to do and they don't feel it. Then they start upping the yeah. dose and then yeah. what you feel is actually not that comfortable. Like I don't yeah. like, um, the other day I coined a term, the in-betweenies. Like I, I ate, hate the in-betweenies, Yeah, dude. I ate some mushrooms the other day uh, or the other night and, you know, in, in kind of a ceremonial way here in the house, um, some, uh, a different, it's all at the story, but anyway, a certain kind of mushroom, and um, and I got the in betweenies. Like I wasn't tripping, I wasn't having visuals, and it definitely wasn't a microdose. So I was kind of just stuck with myself. Like I, I was ready, I intended to kind of go to a deeper place, you know, put on a playlist, eye mask, like have a moment without the full full send. Uh, and I got in the in betweenies, and I just felt actually just quite uncomfortable. It was a good lesson. It's like, for me, and this is for everyone, but it's either like sub-perceptual, true microdose, or it's the full hero, like I'm going out for a few hours and I'm going to get some work done. Yeah. Bye-bye. So you got some past experience with the psychedelics, which sounds like they've been advantageous, but not part of your you know, ongoing routine. The and challenging. How, how have they been challenging? Do you have... Things come up uh, that you that were uncomfortable to face, dude. That's an understatement. It was like the worst <laughs> days of my life. Probably, I'm trying man. to state it. You know, like yeah, yeah, man. But that was my experience, and I think I'm someone who, who, if you knew me, knew that that would be a, like that would be a possibility for me. I have other friends where I'm like, this guy will never have a bad trip. It's because they're wired that way. So yeah, man, I had some challenging ones where I was like, damn, dude. Yeah, I think everyone that's explored those realms has had that, yeah. that experience. You think? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, I've there's been crunchy moments, you know, kind of in those realms, but through the breath, you know, I've been able to surrender through them. And also, I'm, you know, very rarely have been unsupervised or unguided, right? So it's like, I, I know there's another human being there that's still in the earthly realm that is kind of my, um, you know, airbag. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. If I start really tripping, I'd be like, hey, man, am I okay? Like, give me some love, put your hand on my chest, make me breathe, do something. I've never had to ask for the help, but just knowing they're there. Yeah. Am I still alive? Am I okay? Like having a babysitter or a trip sitter or a shaman or whatever has been helpful. But I've had crunchy moments, but I only had one time where I really resisted and tr I really tried to make it stop. I was like, I'm fucking done. Like, this is too much. And I sat up and tried to make it stop. And the room was spinning. It was on 5-MeO DMT and uh, did a podcast about it a couple of years ago. It was with my friend Aubrey and the podcast was basically like the integration of this experience. But that's the only time I had what would classically be called kind of a true ego death in a bad trip where I was like, I do not like this. I want it to stop. I want out. <laughs> yeah. And I really pushed against it. And the more I resisted, the more it hammered me and it was rough. But then a few minutes went by and, you know, I had some help. Actually, that's one time I did get help to just bring me back. And then I had a beautiful, you know, remaining 20 minutes or whatever. But yeah, it was, it was fucking terrifying so i you know i talk a lot about these medicines on the show and i always say a they're not for everyone b yeah. they're not for everyone at all times yeah 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 and there's yeah. probably people not probably there are certainly people out there that have no business even playing around with it because it can be it can be psychologically and physically dangerous literally i so, agree you know so it's something i take lightly but i also have to be honest in that I, part of why I'm the person I am today is because of the help that I've received yeah, from those from those absolutely. medicines, you know, especially in in um, recovery and sobriety. I mean, it's just things I could not heal without mm. the assistance of those. That's so beautiful. Those teachers, just deep seated hurt that I just couldn't I couldn't get to, you know. Well, you know what I'd really love, brother. I'd love for the first time officially on the Lifestylist podcast for a talented, beautiful soul of a musician to play us a song. How do you feel about that? Let's do it. Let's do Excellent. it. Excellent. Let's rock and roll and we'll close it with that. Yeah. Virginia Woolf and poetry No one seemed to notice me Being young is getting so old Cheap beer and cigarettes, life was like a movie set and I seemed to be given no role. But in times of trouble, I could turn to my mother, I know that she don't understand. But at age 18, I cried to my mother and she told me, young man, there are moments when you fall to the ground, but you are stronger than you feel you are now. You don't On the radio, everything was changing, so I thought I was all the way grown. But I can still remember it that cold November when I realized I'm all alone. But in times 
of trouble I could turn to my mother I know that she don't understand But at age 22 I cried to my mother And she told me, young man There are moments when you fall to the ground 